you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, good morning and peace be with you. Um, For those of you who don't know me, my name is uh, Cole and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, And if I seem a little uh, less confident than I usually do. It's because um, I didn't write this sermon. Uh, Reed wrote it, but he decided to get sick on Friday. And so the first time I saw it was last night after dinner. And so uh, we're going to trust that the work that Reed did all week is really good for us, and I'm sure it is. Um, but if you have any complaints about the sermon, uh, write this down. Read at sojournmontrose.org. Uh, feel free to send him an email. Anything that you find particularly helpful, I'm sure it's one of the few edits that I made um, this morning. Um, with that being said, uh, it's, it's really good, um, in spite of all the circumstances, to be with you this morning and to have the opportunity uh, to preach the truth from God's Word as we continue our, our journey through the book of Nehemiah, uh, which is an Old Testament book which tells us the historical count of the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem following Israel's time in exile in Babylon and then in Persia. And this takes place about 500 years before the life of Christ and the work being done in the book of Nehemiah to rebuild the city of Jerusalem is really paving the way for us to understand who we are as God's new covenant people building up the church of God, which is called throughout the New Testament the city of God or the new Jerusalem. And so our work that we are called to do as Christians, um, we, we have a lot to learn from the work that's being done under the leadership of Nehemiah. And so let's pray and, and see what the Lord has for us this morning. Um, Father, we come to you and ask that you would bless our time together. And I pray that you would give us um, just a, an abundance of wisdom and grace from your spirit that we might see your word and respond to it faithfully. Uh, use the, the faithful labor of Reed um, to be a benefit to us. Use my fallible tongue to proclaim your excellencies this morning in, in such a way that we might grow in our ability to serve you, to love others, and to be conformed into your image together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, to set up a, a little bit about Nehemiah chapter 4, which Claire read for us, Nehemiah 4 is is really... A, a big moment in the narrative where there's all of this opposition coming to uh, Nehemiah and, and the Jews who are working to rebuild the city. And, and we were introduced to some of these enemies back in chapter 2 uh, a couple weeks ago, but now we're seeing them really start taking form as these formidable foes against the Jews. And, and yet last week in Nehemiah chapter 3, in between the introduction to the enemies and actually what the enemies are doing, we were given this detailed list of all of the families who were participating in the work of rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. And Chase showed us beautifully how how that teaches us something about our identity as those who are laboring uh, to build God's kingdom and and how God has given us a specific time and a specific space um, in, in which we are called to serve faithfully without without being overly concerned with what's going on to our left or to our right, but, but keeping our, our face ahead. But, but there's also something about chapter 3 that, that helps us understand what we're reading, 
And that's that Nehemiah wasn't only writing down all the names of the families who were building the wall so that we could have spiritual encouragement from it, but he was writing it down as a historian to keep a record of the names of those who were doing the work in Jerusalem, which, which helps us to understand that Nehemiah, it's, it's not just this narrative that we're supposed to like learn lessons from. This is a historical account of, of something that really happened for the people of Israel that was recorded in history for us to learn from and for us to remember. But, but Nehemiah is not only writing a history for us, it's also God's Word, written by God's Spirit for the edification of God's people. And so, God is trying to teach us, even through the historical account of what happened. And throughout the New Testament, two primary symbols that were given to understand who we are as the church are that of the church being the temple of God that's built on the cornerstone of Christ and the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the church being the city of God or the new Jerusalem come down from heaven, this dwelling place of all of God's people in the presence and grace of God. In Ephesians 2, Paul talks about us being the temple of God, saying, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for the God by the Spirit. And so Paul in Ephesians 2 is employing this language of temple building, of God's people being a temple, being built up where God might dwell. Um, and in Revelation chapter 20, 21, John is given this vision um, in verse 9, and he, the angel says to him, he says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And the bride of Christ being the church of God. The church is the bride of Christ. And so this angel says, Come, let me show you the church. Let me show you God's people. And this is what he sees. He says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so the church of God, God's people, in this vision of all of God's promises coming to pass, is revealed to be a great city, the new Jerusalem, the fullness of, of God's habitation. And so we're clearly meant to read Nehemiah, understanding its historic impact. We, we would be fools to miss that. But we're also meant to see that the people of God building the city of God has something to say to us about who we are today as the temple and city of God among the nations. And so whether we're reading this book personally or corporately, we should be thinking about ourselves in relationship to the men and women laboring in Nehemiah to build God's city. And, and, and though we're not we're not mixing concrete and laying brick upon brick. We are building the, the kingdom of God through the mission of God, through the, the proclamation of Christ as Lord, through loving our neighbors and caring for those around us. And so let's see what God has for us in, in Nehemiah chapter 4. What we see initially is that the building project is well underway. Uh, Nehemiah 4, they've been working for a while, and as we, we start the chapter, a threat immediately enters the scene. It says, now when Sanballat heard that, they were building, that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, 
and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what are they building? If, if a fox goes up on the wall, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. So, so in spite of these taunts, Nehemiah responds. He says, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captive. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Verse 2, we see the taunting coming from these two men, Sambalat and Tobiah. They're men that we we met in chapter 2, and they're both governors of regions surrounding Jerusalem and the Persian Empire. And and based on their names and what little historical record, we can can glean that Tobiah and, and Sambalat are both of Jewish descent, but they've clearly rejected their Jewish heritage. Like They've rejected their Jewish identity religiously, they're opposed to the religious worship of Yahweh. They've rejected their Jewish identity ethnically. They've totally sought to assimilate into the Persian Empire and the pagan cultures within that. And we see that because they're joking about the work required, that there's no way that these Jews will be able to accomplish the work. They say even if they build this wall, it's such a bad wall that a little fox could break it down if he jumps on top of it. And... Nehemiah hears this, and, and he's enraged, and he's downcast. He's, he's both enraged and downcast, and, 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 and that's because there's a threat of violence against his people. The work that he's given his life over to is being mocked and, and jeered at. The people that he has rallied to do this work are being made the objects of scorn, and so Nehemiah responds by asking God to judge harshly the enemies of the work that's being done. He says, we're coming out of exile, and we're trying to rebuild our society after exile, and he asked God to send them into exile, right? Send them into a land where they will serve as slaves, where they will be rejected, where the fullness of their guilt will rest upon them. And even in the midst of these enemies jeering, the work continues until, in verse 6, they, they reach a midway point in the project. They get to a halfway mark, and in one of, one of the, the coolest verses in the book, Nehemiah says, So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. I love that. The people had a mind to work. There's no laziness in Jerusalem. There's, there's no abdication of responsibility. These people are focused. They're hardworking. They have clarity in strategy and in mission. Their mind is set on one thing and one thing alone, building up the city of God. Let's build. And again, Sambalat and Tobiah and other enemies show up. And, and this is a theme that kind of happens throughout Nehemiah is, is will we'll be introduced to enemies and then God's people will be persevering and continuing to do the work that they've been called to do. And then immediately after that, we're introduced to those enemies and more. Like now, now that God's people keep building, more enemies show up. 
And this is what happens. It says, when Symbolit and Tobiah and now the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the, rep- that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So formerly, they, they were taunting. They were making jokes. They thought this work is a waste of time. It can never be done. It, it's, it's a fool's errand. Like, that was the joke. But now, because the work is going forward, because God's people are having success, which they thought they wouldn't, now they begin to plot, oh, oh no, our jokes have actually turned out to not really matter. Like, they're, they're pushing forward. The wall's being built. And so now let's sharpen our swords and get ready to fight because we can't allow God's city to be built up. It will be a threat to our power. It will be a threat to our autonomy. We know what happens when God's people are powerful, and we don't want that. But not only are the enemies beginning to to plan opposition, what we see is that even though the work is going forward, God's people, the, the people building, are growing discouraged. It says in verse 10, In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So so not only are the enemies threatening attack and confusion, but in Judah, God's people are growing discouraged. There's just too much to do. There's too much opposition. There's too much work to be done. We don't have enough labor. We're getting exhausted. We don't have the resources. We don't have the manpower. And we're going to be attacked. We need to give up. And so, so these Jews are coming into the city. They're saying, you need to stop. This is a waste. This is foolish. You're going to die. You're going to, like, it's not going to be a success. You have to stop. And then in, in verse 13, we see Nehemiah arise as this great leader, this this strategic and visionary leader. It says, So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He, he gives them this, this system to, to station them in these open places, to arm them and to prepare them. But more importantly than a system, Nehemiah gives the people the vision of a great and convicted leader. Do not be afraid, he says. Remember your God and fight not for yourself, but for your family. Fight for your, for your brothers and your sons and daughters and wives and, and for your home. This is not about you. This is about everyone around you. This is bigger than you. This is the sort of speech that, that in any movie is where, is where like the, arm starts, the hairs on your arm start to raise up. Right? This, is, um, this is Churchill's speech at Parliament. Right? We'll, we'll fight on, on the beaches and on, on the city streets. We'll, like, I don't care if the entire Western world is not with us. I, I don't care if, if everything looks like we're going to be defeated. We are going to fight. This is Aragorn preparing for the battle at the Black Gate when he says, a day may come when the 
courage of men fails when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship, but it is not this day. Today we fight. Nehemiah is shouting on the walls. We know their plan, so take up your sword. Remember God and fight for your family and fight for the kingdom of God. And so what do they do now that they're roused for battle? In any movie, what you would see is, is that they would have their swords and they would begin charging, right? Charging against their enemies and there would be great bloodshed, but instead they work. The enemies of God's people would be all too satisfied if the Jews put down their trowels and left the building project that they so hated to be distracted with war. That would be victory for the enemies of the Jews if they stopped building. So instead, they strap swords at their side and keep working. When our enemies heard, this is verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. Like what an image, right? And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. And so, so the, the vision that Nehemiah has is, is we're still going to be spread out. We're going to continue doing our work. We're going we're to work efficiently, but, but half of the men will be on guard. And, the, and those who are working will have weapons at their side, but we're going to spread out, which, which puts us at a disadvantage. And so, if we're being attacked, the trumpet will blow and we'll all run to the sound of the trumpet. There's this beautiful image of, of the laborers with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. Verses 21 through 23 in this chapter by emphasizing the, the structure and system of, of defense and labor. We're told that, that Nehemiah and, and all of the men who, who were serving, that, that they, never, they put, never put on their night clothes. They stayed dressed, ready for labor and for war. This is a, an image that, that reminds us not, not only of the, the high stakes of the situation, but it would have or even reminded the people who were working of their forefathers in Egypt on the night of the great exodus when they ate the Passover meal dressed, ready for travel. And, and so there's this, this huge momentum toward building in the face of op opposition, being ready to build and defend. And so, so as we move to trying to apply this narrative to a ourselves as the church, it, you're maybe already beginning to see how this clearly applies to us in an age like the one that we find ourselves in. If the church is God's building project for God's city, then we've been invited to work toward the completion of that project. This is a, a major metaphor for, 
for the church in the Bible, that we are to build up the kingdom of God, that we're to participate with Christ in the establishment of his kingdom. Kingdom, and, and so while we're not doing this with physical bricks and stones, we are building something. If you were in Christ, you were responsible for the work of building up the kingdom of God. We're building up a city that is made not of bricks, but of men and women and children. People of all nations and tongues who have bowed at the feet of King Jesus, who have found hope and refuge and salvation in his shed blood on their behalf and life in his resurrection. We strengthen the walls of this city through discipleship and through discipline through fasting and prayer and studying our Bibles and feasting at the Lord's table and and baptizing those who have repented and believed and growing into the maturity of those who are being conformed into the image of Christ. But the people of God are not the only ones who are meant to enjoy the city of God. Since God originally made this beautiful promise to Abraham that, that he would be a great nation, What was attached to that promise that you would be a great nation that would do what? That would bless the nations of the earth. And so God has made a promise that his people will not only be blessed by God, but will be a blessing to others. And so we, the church, are built up for the glory of God, for the security of God's people, but also for the benefit of the outsiders. So we build. Just as the people of God built under Nehemiah's leadership, we are called to build under the kingship of Christ. And we defend. We defend the glory of God, the doctrines of God, and the people of God. But whom do we defend against? Who are these enemies that want to thwart the building of God's kingdom? Well, the Apostle Paul would tell us that that the battle we wage is not primarily against flesh and blood, but that it's primarily against the, the spiritual powers of darkness, against Satan and all of his demons, that, that, that Satan has a desire to, to lie and kill and destroy and, and, and to disrupt the plans and the beauty of God. He's called the Prince of Lies because it's what he's been doing ever since we've been introduced to him in, in the first chapters of the Bible when he asked Eve that fateful question that he has since asked every one of God's people at one time or another, which is, did God really tell you that? So we have to take the threat of this enemy seriously. And and to be candid, in our theological tribe, we are more likely than not oblivious to the spiritual darkness. We, we avoid thinking about it or ta- talking about it. We would much rather have a, a concrete, logical, and human foe to fight against. So how do we fight against these enemies that we often can't see, that we often don't realize are present? Well, if, if the primary tool of Satan is lies, then our primary defense is truth. We have to remember the Lord and all of his promises to us. We have to know his word. We have to be like the people under Nehemiah who remember that God is great and awesome and that he will fight for us. We have to remember that Christ has already defeated Satan on the cross and in the resurrection. And so that while there are still still flailings of attack from 
Satan and his army, there is no chance of victory. The, the, the battle is won through Christ our King, and yet we are called to remember the truth, to fight against the evil one. We have to remember the greater one, the righteous one, that Christ reigns, that we rally to one another when the trappings of the enemy are too great, like the people rallied at the sound of the trumpet. We defend against the enemy by rooting ourselves in the truth through the ordinary means of God's grace in his church. Through the discipline of prayer and communion with God. Through the beauties of belonging to one another in God's covenant people. We're rooted in the truth as we hear the word of God read, sung, and taught. But the most valuable weapon that we have against the lies of our spiritual enemies is the Word of God. The Apostle Paul refers to it as the the sword of the Spirit. It is our weapon against darkness, the Word of God. And so, church, we have to know it and be rooted in it. We must be people of the Word. It makes me think of Joshua chapter 1. Joshua is preparing to lead the people of Israel after 40 years of wandering in the desert into the promised land, but it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a conquest. They're going to face many enemies. And God doesn't tell Joshua to prepare for this conquest by having all of his men sharpen their swords. No, he says, meditate on the law of the Lord day and night, and do not forsake it. The preparation for battle, even physical battle, for God's people has always been rooted in the word of God the speech of God's promises, the ways that God has called us to live. And so we must be people of the Word. Though we wage war primarily against spirits of darkness, we also have human enemies. We also have human institutions which desire to destroy the people of God, pervert the doctrines of God, and prevent the worship of God. And this is happening everywhere all over the world in some form or another. Let me be clear. This isn't to be understood in opposition to or separately from the spiritual war that we wage. They're one in the same. But those who seek to destroy the work of God, defame the name of Jesus, attack God's people, are the enemies of Christ and his church. They're to be taken seriously. We're to seek to keep working even in their presence and even amidst their taunts and even when they attack. Like the Jews in Nehemiah chapter 4 were to keep building when attacks are coming, when threats abound, when swords are pulled out, when taunts are being shouted. In the face of our enemies, we are called to be faithful and obedient, knowing that God is a good shepherd who always prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. But in the age of the risen Christ, we are no longer called to work with weapons in our hands. Jesus tells us exactly how to wage war against our enemies in Matthew chapter 5. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Our defense against the foes of God and his people is love. Christ has conquered all of our enemies, and he's conquered not with the sword, 
but with love, with sacrificial love, by giving up his life in love for others. And so the love of Christ displayed through a church that's under persecution, that's under attack, that's being taunted, love of Christ toward our enemies is the sort of instrument that God has historically used not only to conquer the plans of his enemies, but also to turn his enemies into his adopted sons and friends and those who participate in his kingdom. If you want evidence of this, look at the man who wrote half of your New Testament, the Apostle Paul. He formally stood by and ordered Christians to be killed, and yet, through the sacrificial love of Christ and his people, was transformed. And there is a third type of enemy. Not only are, are demons and outsiders at times enemies of God and his word, but the third type of enemy in Nehemiah are those who wear the name of God's people. Those who show up in verse 10 saying, the work is too much. The threats are too great. The hope is too small. We should give up. We should settle for less. We should turn back. We should abandon the plan. But Nehemiah responded saying, no, this is God's plan. This is God's city. This is God's mission. This is God's kingdom. We don't abandon it because God has decreed it. Who are we to go against what God has decreed? We will not cower. We will not save ourselves. There's work to be done, and it is God's work. So church, there's going to be enemies and threats to the work of God's kingdom. There has been for thousands of years, and there will continue to be. These threats will be physical, and they will be social, and they will always be spiritual. Yet we are called to be people of the word, people of prayer, people of steadfast faithfulness, people of courage, people of love for others, even love for our enemies. We will love well and without ceasing until our enemies crush us and send us home to Christ or until they turn and repent and find grace in the arms of our loving King. You may think that there will be a day when the strength of God's church will fail. Maybe you think that day has come that the writing is on the wall, that, that the days of Christendom are over, that the church might as well give up and uh, assimilate into the culture, give up the work that God has called us to do, but I'm here to tell you, this is not that day. That day will never come. Today we fight and build and defend. We fight with the body and blood of Christ on our breath as we leave the table with courageous and humble love in our hearts, with the word of God ever present on our lips, and with a vision of the fullness of God's redeemed people dwelling and singing and feasting in unity before Christ face to face for all eternity on our mind. And remember this, that the people of God in Nehemiah, didn't, they didn't go looking for a fight. They didn't seek the war out. They didn't mount up and go on the offensive. They had a mind to work. They got ready to defend. They pleaded God for justice. They prayed that he would fight for him, but they had their mind on the work ahead. In Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews talks about the faithful forefathers preceding the days of Christ. And in all of their acts of faith, he sums it up by saying that 
that they were journeying, they were laboring, they were moving forward in hopes of a better country. Nehemiah was this great leader who, who had a vision of a better city. And he compelled his people to follow him. He was faithful and prayerful. He was courageous and strong. He was a visionary. And, and yet Nehemiah is nothing but a shadowy preview of the great king that we have in Christ. Christ is far more awesome. He has fought for us far more valiantly. And he has won more decisively. Because of the work of Christ, Satan is defeated. And if you have put your hope in him, the sting of death is no more. So in light of our great king and the kingdom that he's invited us graciously to participate in building, let us take up both trowel and sword to build the church and defend the glory of God, knowing that he will fight for us. And behold, he set a table for us in the presence of our enemies a table where our cup will always overflow with the fullness of his love and grace and forgiveness and the surety of his promises. Let's pray and feast together. Father, we thank you that you make promises to us and that we can trust them. We thank you that you have invited us graciously to participate in work far more meaningful than we could ever find in the marketplace or manufacture on our own, but to participate in building up your kingdom through sacrificial love, through giving our lives over to the service of you and one another. Would you show us your beauty so that our hearts would be compelled to trust you in it? Give us the courage to do the work of loving faithfully and sacrificially. Give us the faith to trust you when enemies taunt, when threats abound, when swords are drawn against us. Make us steadfast and, and set our minds on the hope of something better, not only for us, but also for our children and our brothers and our wives and our neighbors. A vision of a kingdom where tears are no more, where sin is no more, where sickness no longer reigns, but where love and peace and salvation are ever-present, where your glory becomes our light. Would you show us something of that as we come to your table and feast upon the finished work that you've accomplished on our behalf? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.